good practice can involve giving people a, a heads up that the thing that you're making is going to contain stuff around suicide. So that's a, a concept people may have heard of as trigger warnings or content notes. I'm a bit more comfortable with content note than trigger warning because as someone who is triggered by things, the things I'm triggered by are quite often things people don't expect. There are lots of things that you'd assume might trigger me that don't. And also you can't ever know. Something might suddenly trigger me when it never had before. I avoid the words trigger warning, but I, I'm quite pro content note. We have them all over the place. Films have classification and lots of things say expect this in this episode of this programme, but people don't get angry about them unless they're specifically called content notes or trigger warnings. Have I got that right? And are there things around that that I'm not thinking about? You've hit the nail on the head there in many respects. I like this distinction you make between trigger warnings and content notices because absolutely we don't know what, what are the key triggers for an individual. So yeah, have an advanced warning in terms of content that makes perfect sense so I'd really really encourage that but if we look in terms of best practice more broadly as when we're talking about suicide and the complexity we have to, it's important that we highlight it's complex and there's never one single factor leads to suicide that just doesn't happen now us as outsiders looking in it might seem or might appear that oh is this one single factor led to the suicide of somebody we know or see in the media. But we have no idea what was going on in their head. We have no idea about all the other factors that's maybe rendered them as vulnerable in the past. And usually, nine times out of ten, I would argue, that there is a hidden vulnerability if it's not something that we're aware of. So when we're talking about suicide in the media, yeah, we have to highlight the complexity. We also, it's really important that we embed messages of hope. Suicide is not the answer. Most people who die by suicide, it's not about wanting to die. It's about wanting the pain to end. And what people, when you're in the midst of that suicidal crisis and the depths of despair, you can't see beyond the next hour, day, or whatever it may be. Suicidal thoughts, we do know for certain that they wax and wane, they come and go. There's peaks and troughs. And it's trying to remember that in the acute crisis, that things do get better. There is hope. There is support out there. And indeed, never mind the research literature, there's loads of anecdotal evidence. If you're in the moment of crisis, and you come across a message, you hear about somebody else who did get through a difficult period. That gives you hope. And that maybe those small things can make a heck of a difference. And they actually could, could save somebody's life. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's right. And I, I, I have had experience of seeing other people's experiences that have definitely given me hope in moments when I've needed them. sunless sea memories of my dad episode 9 we're not in uncharted territory this podcast includes content funded by the British Podcast Awards and the Wellcome Trust they have a survey at podcastviews.com which I'd really appreciate you filling in Fill it in for Getting Better Acquainted, the podcast that Down to a Sunless Sea grew out of and is produced by. Some topics coming up in this episode that you might want to be aware of are suicide, bereavement, self-harm, 
war, anti-Semitism, the Nazis, COVID-19, and mental health. I'm here in Cheadle Village Hall, which is quite an echoey room, so that's why you can hear me sonorously through your headphones today. And I'm here with Julie Gottlieb. Thank you for having me as part of the podcast. I'm really interested in the project. The way I think about mental health issues and suicide is that everything is kind of biopsychosocial, which is a term that I have appropriated from Meg John Barker and Justin Hancock. They talk about that on their podcast, the Meg John and Justin podcast, quite a lot. And it's just a term that means that everything is partly biological, partly psychological and partly social. Social is the part that I think gets spoken about the least in many ways. As someone who has mental health issues, it can be quite frustrating for them all to always be seen through the lens of what's inside me and for people to not take into account all of the material conditions in society all around me that also influence my mental health. I found you on the Welcome Collections website, which told me that you are looking at suicide, but through the social lens. So could you give us a brief overview of who you are and why you're talking to me about suicide today? So I'm a professor of modern history at the University of Sheffield. I had a welcome-funded project called Suicide Society in Crisis. So just what you're saying, I was looking at the environmental aspect, the impact of environment, the impact of social change, especially of social crisis, even more particularly of international crisis on individual mental health. I was really curious about the internalization of political crisis, how that is experienced, but also how that's represented and how that's written about historically. So to be very specific, it was a larger project and it was very collaborative, which I was really grateful for because there was so much insight to be had by creating an interdisciplinary forum. I ran a workshop and a a larger international symposium two years ago. So we brought together sociologists, historians, practitioners, people in the front line of mental health, psychologists, psychiatrists, people working in the charitable sector. But we were all grappling with the same question, which was, what does suicide say about society? And what does society say about suicide? That elliptical question that I think is often overlooked in the individuated way in which mental health is dealt with in a clinical fashion now and and certainly for the last few decades. So the specific, though, as I say, the particular case study that brought me to ask these questions that led me to frame these research questions emerges from my own specific research. I was working on a project about the position, the role, and the presence of women in international crisis in Britain in the late 1930s, uh, particularly about women and appeasement. The traditional narrative, one that most people are familiar with, is the breakdown of international relations, the attempt to foster Anglo-German friendship, even in the face of Hitler, and even when Hitler was the one to be negotiated with. That is seen very much as a masculine, a male-centered, male-identified story. We talk about the guilty men who were ultimately responsible for sending Britain careering into a war it wasn't prepared for. Again, that's a a very kind of dominant idea of why Britain entered the war relatively unprepared. And again, you know, the next part of that story, the next chapter is the triumphal achievements of Churchill in bringing the country to keep calm, to carry on, to reignite its heroic spirit. All of that, of course, is a very male-centered, male-identified story. And as a historian of women, as a woman's historian, historian, I've tried to take women's history into areas where it has 
not really entered before. And that was certainly true in terms of international relations and the history of appeasement. Now, in looking for women in this appeasement story, I needed to start looking at different kinds of sources. They weren't going to be in the Foreign Office files. They weren't going to be so much in the parliamentary record, although there were about a dozen women MPs at that time who surprisingly were actually quite outspoken on foreign policy issues. Nonetheless, that trail long as it was, did come to an end. So the question was, how did women feel about the international crisis? How did politicians try to cater to or court women, especially women voters, right? Because, of course, it had only been exactly 20 years in 1938 since women had the vote. And women now represented more than 50% of the electorate. So politicians were acutely aware of courting, manipulating, making sure women were on side with any policy that they pursued. As it happens, Chamberlain, Neville Chamberlain was extremely popular with women. And there were many ways in which that was expressed. And it was felt that the peace that he made at Munich at the Four Powers Conference at Munich at the end of September 1938, that that was kind of a women's peace. He did it for the women to satisfy the women because that's what women wanted. They wanted peace, peace at any price. In any case, so where did I find the women? Where should I look for them? I had to look for them not in the political, but at the social level. I needed to see where they were in terms of public opinion, how their opinions were being represented, whether their opinions were being represented, whether they were being represented accurately or very stereotypically and so forth. So I did a lot of newspaper research in national and local newspapers. And I started to be really interested in the emotional side, the emotional aspect of the accelerating Munich crisis, as it was called. And what I came across more and more, I'll I'll make this a, a shorter version of that story, but what I came across and what started to strike me, first of all, was general sense of, of panic, hysteria, worry at all levels of society. And of course, women were usually seen to be more susceptible to hysteria and panic. So there was a gendered aspect to that for sure. Against that, there was a spoken, but mainly unspoken position from the point of view of the press to try to dampen down and play down public fears and hysteria for the press to to provide some kind of calming effect on the population. Something worth considering as we sit here in mid-March 2020, a day after a pandemic has been announced. Anyway, so the press, the media definitely did take the position of trying not to represent public opinion, but to lead it, to manipulate it, to try to create a sense of calm in the face of, of mounting public anxiety. So how do we measure those public anxieties? Because we know they existed. We know they went deep. We know that one way or another, political crisis is internalized. It is not just external. It's not out there. It's internalized. In many ways, it's also then externalized. Well, one of the things that I say that I kept on coming across were these very sad stories, coroner's reports or, or you know, newspaper reports of coroner's hearings of suicide cases. And one after another of these cases, the trigger, the cause was identified as the international crisis. Coroners were finding, and you know, thanks to the testimony given by family members or friends or, or sometimes doctors, that those who were suffering, some from underlying what we today would call underlying or pre-existing mental health conditions, some who had none but suffered from nerves. They were a very nervous person. Terms they would use at that time, and that's that's something I'm really interested in now. They were consumed by worry, etc. So, you know, all of these suicides, and I have a, a spreadsheet of 134 cases that fit into this genus 
of suicide. I'm sure there are many more, but the research, you know, it's challenging in many ways because it relies on those stories being reported in the press. There's a lot of considerations behind that, whether newspapers feel it's right to report these, which mostly they did because it's sensational. People like to read about these graphic and dramatic cases, even when clearly doesn't respect people's privacy and their most intimate and, and most fateful decisions. In any case, I came across these cases and we're looking at about 40% female, 60% male in the sample that I've amassed so far. Cases that were directly linked to the international crisis. Various causes, various triggers were described, you know, because of course there were a number of ways in which the public was made to prepare, but also to feel extra anxious about what could come. The, the leitmotif, the commonality of all these cases was fear of war, and especially the kind of war this would be. Very different, they knew, from the First World War. It was a war that would make no allowances, no distinction between combatant and non-combatant. It was a war or that to some extent materialized, but notably didn't fully, wasn't fully realized, it was going to be a war against the people. It was going to be a war not only of soldiers, but very much of civilians. So these were the fears, fear of air raids, fear of being bombed, fear of a really terrible death, fear of losing loved ones, both losing loved ones, fathers, sons who would go off to war and risk their lives for their country, but also fear of those who were to stay home and who were no longer discriminated against from the fatality of war because of modern technologies and especially a war from the air. So I'm here today to talk to Rory O'Connor and I'm here in his office at the University of Glasgow. Today we're going to be talking about suicide. How did you come to be somebody who would be interviewed about suicide? So I'm professor of psychology, professor of health psychology at the University of Glasgow here. And I lead the Suicidal Behaviour Research Laboratory, which is one of the sort of leading research groups in the UK looking at suicide and self-harm. Now, I've been doing work in this field for 25 years now. So in the mid-1990s, I was an undergraduate student in psychology at Queen's University in Belfast. I just finished my degree and there's an opportunity arose to do a PhD on suicide. And so ever since then, I've just been so passionate, so intrigued about trying to understand why people become suicidal in the first place, what are the complex set of factors that lead to suicide, and then what can we do to help the most vulnerable. And then I moved to Scotland after my PhD, and I've been here ever since. And the work that we do within the University of Glasgow, within the Suicidal Behaviour Research Laboratory, is I lead a team of people, a team of researchers, postgraduates, clinical trainees, a whole range of people. And we're all looking at different ways to understand this complex phenomenon. So some of the work that we do is large-scale surveys, looking at the epidemiology of suicide and self-harm. Another stuff is looking at experimental-based work in which we bring people into the lab here and we try and understand the mechanisms, the complex mechanisms that underpin the generation of suicidal thoughts. And then how we go from thinking about suicide to attempting suicide. And then the last sort of group of studies or work that we do is in hospitals. We do a lot of work with people who have attempted suicide. And there's two types of work we do in that respect. One is we assess people following a suicide attempt on a range of sort of psychological or psychosocial factors, these broad risk factors or protective factors. And then we try and understand which of those factors is associated with increased risk of future suicidal behavior or sadly death by suicide. And then we also do this intervention-based work in which we try and help those who are most vulnerable to reduce the risk of suicide in the future. It's a topic which I've grappled with in a couple of ways in my life. I have 
personal experience, not of actually trying to take my life, but I've certainly got a lots of suicidal ideation or suicidal thoughts that I've been grappling with. It's also something I professionally grappled with a little bit. I've done work around masculinity. And so when you start looking at masculinity, suicide comes up. In terms of the terms, <laughs> how we talk about suicide, that has been something that has evolved throughout history. And particularly in recent times, there's been a lot of evolution around how we think about how we talk about suicide. Suicide is something that was once illegal in this country. And that is why we have this leftover term of commit suicide, which is referring to committing a criminal act. So people who use commit now should think very carefully about why they're doing that. And if they want to continue, I certainly try to avoid it myself. And the word that you do looks at suicide as a behavior. That's the kind of term that you're using around it. Could you speak a little bit more about what terms people use and, and why that evolution has happened? And also maybe a little bit about approaches that the media should take when they're talking about suicide, which is very pertinent to me because I'm holding a microphone in yeah. this moment. I am a member of the media for better or worse. This is something I have to think of very carefully when putting together this show. Really important questions and a broad topic. You're right to talk about it as the evolution of the terms and the evolution of our language around suicide and more broadly self-harm. And you're right to highlight committing suicide in particular and indeed historically it harks back to a time when suicide was illegal in this country. Now you remember it wasn't that long ago it was in the 1960s that it was decriminalised and actually in the Republic of Ireland it was decriminalised I think in 1993 and then sadly there are many countries across the globe where suicide still is a criminal offence. Really really problematic for a whole range of reasons. So when we think about the language I personally avoid using the term committing suicide for that very reason but I think there's some people might argue that we should never forget about the context. I accept that we should never forget about the context but I think it's safer to avoid using the term committing suicide because family members and loved ones who've been lost, people to suicide have certainly told me and others that they find it distressing when people talk about the clinical, this criminal offence. So my advice simply is I would never tell anybody what to say, but but certainly my advice would I wouldn't use it and I encourage people who work with me not to use the term committing suicide. And then there are clear media guidelines on the reporting of suicide. The National Union of Journalists, the International Association for Suicide Prevention, Samaritans and a range of other organisations, they have clear guidance on the media reporting of suicide. And one of those pieces of guidance is specifically to do with language. So we should avoid, according to the guidance, avoid using committing suicide and talk about people dying by suicide and ending their life. The other issue to do with terminology is if you look at people who engage in non-fatal suicidal behaviour, for example, an episode of self-harm, we often describe that in a pejorative way and talk about non-fatal suicidal behaviour as attention-seeking. And again, that's problematic because, to my mind, any form of self-injurious behaviour, doesn't matter what the motives that underpin that self-injurious behaviour are, is that it needs respect and needs compassionate response, not any form of scorn and belittling and pejorative responses. Right. And, and another part of kind of media guidelines around suicide are that reporting should avoid, in all cases, if possible, describing the means of the suicidal behaviour or act that happened. Why is that? The reason is straightforward. It's not about, these guidelines are not about censorship. 
They're about keeping people safe. So we know that the inappropriate reporting of suicide in the media is associated with increased rates of suicide thereafter. The international research literature would suggest that suicide rates increased by about 10% in the immediate aftermath of a high-profile celebrity suicide. We're sitting here today a few weeks in Glasgow, a few weeks after Caroline Flack, the TV presenter in the UK, died by suicide. Now, I was horrified by the way the media reported that. Now, a lot of the media reported it well, but there was a sizable proportion and some of the main media broadcasters were describing the method in detail. The reason we're concerned about that is I've already mentioned the fact that there is this association with increased rates of suicide. But the idea is that if you identify with somebody who dies by suicide and we go into detail about the methods, people who identify with the person who's died who are maybe themselves feeling vulnerable, may be part of this pathway, this complex pathway that leads them to maybe use that method of suicide. So it's very clear. It's not about censorship. It's about keeping people alive and keeping people safe. One of the things that we get really pushed at us now is this idea of keep calm, carry on, and the blitz spirit and everybody pulled together. And it's it's a it's a problematic part of our national character at this moment. I mean, it feeds into many of the things that the current crisis is that we're dealing with, like Brexit or the rise of international fascism. And it's an interesting thing because when we look back at our past in this country, we don't tend to look at it, in my view, at least very accurately. And it's interesting to think that in the run-up to the actual blitz and the war and all of those things, you know, people weren't necessarily feeling that way. And it's also interesting for me to think of like my dad at that time. He he was part of that war, but he had a very lucky war. He had a very safe war, actually. And it's interesting that the people there were like all assuming that they might be seeing combat or the people they know might be dying. But like with many situations where we fear the future, the future might be very different from the one that we're that we're afraid of. I was developing this project at exactly the time of the EU referendum campaign. And a couple of days after the referendum and the, in my view, very unfortunate result, I wrote a blog called Post-Referendum Depression. And that was based on very anecdotal and what I saw around me. My husband was very active in the campaign on, on what I hope was the right side, but obviously the wrong side of history, as it turns out. So I saw it very close up, how he gave everything to that campaign. And of course, the deep, deep sense of loss, of depression, of tragedy when the result went the way that it did. So he was kind of my patient zero for post-referendum depression. Ultimately, as historians, there's no such thing as detachment or objectivity. We're all somehow invested and involved. My interest in the late 1930s comes from my family history and my interest in the public reaction and the cost to mental health of political crisis is, is something that I understand close up as well. So I wrote this blog, which reflected back on and made these analogies 
you know, careful analogies. I think, you know, historians are usually very cautious. But in any case, I thought the historical parallels between the international crisis of 1938 and Brexit 2016, the parallels were not historical. The parallels were emotional. The parallels weren't in terms of this course of political events. The parallels were mentality, the feeling of being in that kind of situation, the terminology, the terminologies, the language, the discourses of the late 1930s seemed both to be recurring in the setting of of 2016 and in the three years since, well now four years, but uh, three and a half, where are we? (laughs) Seems to go on and on. And again, it's that kind of push and pull between the stiff upper lip and admitting that levels of anxiety are getting out of control. I mean, since then, of course, psychologists and psychiatrists have identified and diagnosed a, a proper syndrome of Brexit anxiety. And I've talked about that at various stages on radio and with journalists and so forth. It's been helpful both for me, but also hopefully for others, and seeing that there are certain patterns here. I think that can sometimes be reassuring in a way, too, that we're not in uncharted territory here. Those of us who suffer from the environmental, who feel that we can't cope because of what's going on outside, we're not somehow, you know, I guess snowflakes, I guess, as you'd put it today. But every generation, especially those who have lived in times of acute crisis, have suffered the mental health, the psychological impact of those events. It's it's interesting to speak to a historian for this episode because my dad lived history like we all do. Having a a father that was 58 when I was born and and is now 95 has given me a different perspective to many people of my generation. Like the Second World War is an alive thing to me. It was literally history to everybody else that was in my classes at school. And my dad was, he didn't just live history, he documented it to a certain extent. He was a documentary filmmaker for the Cobord and he made mining review that was played in in front of films to sort of tell people what was going on in mining communities. He was documenting history as it happened. You are documenting history from the now looking at the past. For me, and that was interesting what you just said about the age of your father, you know, you had that greater proximity, that greater closeness to the events of the Second World War. In my mind, and, you know, even, you know, we still talk, you know, with my, within my family, my, sadly, my parents have passed away. But, you know, when they were alive, and still to this day as a function of their living through the war and living through surviving. It was a a survival that my grandfather didn't survive, but my three of my grandparents did and my two parents, both um, who were very young at the time. The war was always the war. The war was always the war. We always knew what we meant when we said the war. It wasn't Iraq. It wasn't Vietnam. It wasn't, it was the Second World War and it was still very the consequences were still very live. The aftershocks kept on coming in many ways. So to me, it wasn't something distant and remote. It was very much living and breathing in terms of memory, in terms of my emotional connection to the war, in terms of the kind of questions that I asked. You know, like most historians to some extent, but again, when you're working on something that is still notionally within living memory, you know, you are inevitably trying to use your historical research to illuminate, to help solve kind of ancestral mysteries. So my mother was born in 1938. Need I say more? I'm talking about the Munich crisis. I wanted to know the kind of world that my grandparents decided to still breed in, you know, still have children in. My father two years earlier, you know, things that were already pretty bad. They were both born in Hungary. I grew up in Canada and I'm Canadian, but I'm only first generation Canadian. So again, my connection to the war should be clarified in that sense, I think. There is a kind of thing about having lived through a war. 
And it's not to do with this, all the sort of triumphalism or the politics. You know, it's just the fact that you are living in a rather strange way in society, which everybody accepts and knows about. So it's quite natural. But that, you know, that's what I mean. Life is like. I mean, you were in a controlled situation. You might have made a personal fuss or disliked. Yeah, I mean, people accepted it various sort of the personality, but this is what I mean about being in a war. It was just something which you had to do. One of the problems around suicide that comes up is people calling it attention-seeking. Another one is people calling it selfishness. My aunt has had depression all her life and has had a, a few suicide attempts. When I interviewed her about her life, she told me when she was intending to take her life, she was doing it for her family. She was doing it because she thought the world would be better off without her. And, and so when we think of people who are suicidal as being selfish, that's a very strange thing to me because many of them will be doing it for altruistic but misguided reasons. Absolutely, that's so, so true because we know that when you're in the midst of a suicidal crisis, we often talk about constricted thinking or tunnel vision. You can't see alternatives. And actually, you hone into this idea that actually I'm a burden on others and my loved ones would be better off if I was dead. So I couldn't agree more. It's so often it's just the complete reverse. It's not selfishness. It's this idea of this misguided, sadly, when you're feeling so low in self-worth and hopeless and you think that, my God, others are just having to look out for me all the time. Those sort of cyclical thoughts of ruminative thoughts, then you go, well, actually, people would be better off if I was dead. I'm doing them a favour. So my message is, again, reminding all of us, if people live, listen to this podcast thinking, well, actually, I, I, I feel like that at times. It's remembering those thoughts do pass and the people around you do care and that there is help and support out there. And all of those kind of factors come together to kind of create a very big stigma around suicidal behaviours and thoughts and actions. As far as I understand, that doesn't really help. I mean, I guess some people are putting that stigma out there because they think it will help. They think it will be a deterrent. And that's one of the reasons, I guess, why it was once illegal and people wanted to try and discourage people from doing it. So there's maybe some good intentions within all of that. But the, but the thing is, as far as I understand it, stigma has the opposite effect to any of those intentions, right? From my mind, the relationship between stigma and mental health and suicide is complicated, like everything. However, just think of it logically, and there is evidence out here, is that people, men often in particular, are less likely to seek help because of the stigma associated with suicide, also because it relates to masculinity. And one conceptualization of masculinity is you don't seek help. You're the person who knows everything and can do everything and support yourself. Whereas I think the opposite is true, is that the best sort of masculinity is recognizing your vulnerability and then reaching out and getting the help and support that you require. The good thing has been over the last, say, 20 years across the UK, the stigma associated with mental health has decreased. And then there is definitely evidence that shows that that decrease in stigma has been associated with an increase in help-seeking and hopefully getting social support. But remember, it's important to think about where does stigma come from? Stigma often comes from fear and fear and ignorance because you just don't know. I remember growing up as a kid and there was a guy who lived not far from us and he had mental health problems. And I remember my mother talking, oh, stay away from him. But again, when you speak to her now, it was just because she didn't know. She didn't know what his mental health problems were. And then that lack of contact with people, in that case, his mental health problems, grows these arms 
arms and legs of this person is different from us. Whereas that's just so untrue because every one of us have a mental health. Every one of us is on a continuum of good versus whatever per mental health I want a better description. We're all the same in that regard. We only differ really in quantity. Right. And we're not fixed as well. So we change in different times in our lives. There's been times in my life when I've been quite mentally well. And there's been times in my life when I've been quite mentally unwell. And those change in different circumstances. How would you describe suicidal ideation? Well, there's lots of different ways in which people experience suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation. But for some, it's this intense feeling of worthlessness. You just want the pain to end and this cyclical nature you it often can be non-stop thoughts of I'm a burden I'm shameful I'm an awful person how could anybody love me I can't even love myself but the thing is it escalates and escalates and escalates and for some people those are really really intense and then they, they come and go and peaks and troughs but for a small proportion of people live with those thoughts a lot every day but everybody experiences suicidal thoughts differently other people there are these low-lying low-level thoughts about actually I wouldn't care if I died and you have the whole spectrum in between and it's certainly not a case of going one One type of suicidal thought is more serious than another type of suicidal thought. It's much more complicated and much more nuanced than that. Now, needless to say, if somebody who is acutely suicidal and is just so fixated on suicide all the time, of course, we need to really intervene. They're really, really vulnerable. But this is not a one-size phenomenon. And I suppose the other thing worth noting is that the thing about suicidal thoughts is they're so exhausting. For some, And if you think we're all limited in the psychological pain that we can withstand. And so often what people who attempt suicide talk about is actually they've just had enough and that basically they want that pain to end, that unbearable pain to end. We've done a lot of research recently on looking at the difference between people who think about suicide, who ideate about suicide, but don't go any further. And how are they different from people who attempt suicide or sadly die by suicide? I mean, I guess I'm one of the, the, the category of people so far anyway, at this time in my life, who has suicide ideation but has never attempted suicide the 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 interesting thing about suicidal ideation a little bit like self-harm as well these concepts get a little bit tied down to specific ideas and so I didn't realize for many years I had suicidal thoughts because I wanted to stop existing Mm -hmm. and I wasn't conceptualizing in my head you know dying that wasn't what I was ever thinking it was a it was a kind of end of the unpleasantness of the experiences and then when I realized that that was suicidal ideation later in life then unfortunately because I'd seen clearly what I was doing then they progressed to being a bit more explicit because then I'd made the connection between what I was feeling and the the literal behavior or act of suicide and that is very much like my relationship to self-harm when I was younger I would have said that people who I knew self-harmed and they did the classic self-harm but I would never have said that of myself and yet now when I look back you know punching walls breaking my own stuff treating myself generally badly in lots of different kinds of ways are forms of self-harm. A broad range of self-destructive behaviors you're absolutely right it's really important to highlight that that people's experience of suicidal thoughts people's experience of self-harm is unique. Now, there are common features, which we sort of touched on already. When we're doing some of our research is when we ask people, have have they self-harmed? And we've got a formal definition, which is just your standard definition of, did you inflict harm on yourself, right? Basically, which irrespective of motive. Well, in that broader definition, it includes, as you described quite nicely there, of these other aggressive behaviors, which are directed at uh, internally at the self. So it's a really complex phenomenon. So I've developed this theoretical model of trying to understand suicide risk. And this model 
model is called the Integrated Motivational Volitional Model of Suicidal Behaviour. There's lots of key premises or key features of the model, but the two important ones, I think, for the purposes of our conversation now are, first of all, the factors that lead somebody to become suicidal in the first place are distinct from the factors that lead us to make this transition across the precipice from thinking about suicide to attempting suicide or dying by suicide. People become suicidal because they feel defeated and humiliated or a sense of loss and rejection from which they cannot escape. So this sense of entrapment, that you're trapped by this pain, is like this psychological pain, this unbearable pain that people who are suicidal talk about. The point there is that sense of entrapment, which could be driven by a whole range of factors. It could be influenced by early life trauma. It could be influenced by really acute or chronic mental health problems. It could be related to losing your job or having no sense of purpose in life, right? All these potential factors interact. But what's key is how they change the way you think. And your thinking is this unbearable pain is you're just trapped by it. So that's in essence sort of the key premise of my model in terms of what leads you to be suicidal in the first place. The second key point in this context is that we've then, in terms of the model, identified a group of factors, of risk factors, which I call volitional factors. And these volitional factors are simply defined as any factor which leads you to make the transition between thinking about suicide and acting on your thoughts, crossing the precipice, attempting suicide, or sadly dying by suicide. In my model, which was recently updated in 2018 with a colleague, Olivia Kirtley at Leuven University, we've identified eight factors. And these eight factors, that when they're present, we think increase the likelihood you move from thoughts, suicidal thoughts, to suicide attempts. And they are relatively, in some senses, straightforward, but I think important to outline. The first is, if you've think about suicide and you've got access to the means of suicide, you're more likely to act on your thoughts. That's not particularly surprising. Then we've got things like knowing other people, what we describe as exposure to suicide. So if a family member or a close friend has attempted suicide or died by suicide, statistical increase of your risk. It's really important to highlight that that's a statistical increase because the overwhelming majority of people who are exposed to the suicide of others will never ever become suicidal and will never ever attempt suicide. But it's a statistical risk. Third, my be the more impulsive you are. Unsurprisingly, the more likely you are to act on your thoughts of suicide. And then we've got this thing called the capability for suicide, the capacity to carry out the suicidal act. And that capability is often described in two ways. So you've got higher physical pain tolerance, which is often required to enact the suicidal act or the suicide attempt. And then the second one is we think you have to overcome the life instinct. You have to overcome this fearfulness about dying. So we think that high levels of fearlessness coupled with this high physical pain tolerance are part of this capability for suicide. And then we've got things like mental imagery, imagining yourself dying or dead. We think increases the likelihood you act on your thoughts. And then the last one worth mentioning is the single best predictor of any future behavior is past behavior. So if you've engaged in any form of suicidal behavior, irrespective of its self-harm or explicitly suicidal intent, you're more likely to act and do that again. It's the same as any other behavior because it comes back to this key point. Consequences are devastating, of course, but suicide is first and foremost a behavior. And we know from all the science of every behavior in the world, the best predictor of any future behavior is whether you've attempted it before. One of the things that goes with many people's suicidal thoughts is that circle that you kind of talked about like a circular process with my dad getting dementia and and going further and further away into that state of being he has become increasingly fixated understandably and and it would be interesting to hear your take on the difference between assisted suicide or assisted dying and other forms of suicide but as he's kind of gone into that state he's fixated on that and he's been having a circle around wishing that was available to Mm -hmm. him but 
he's got quite a lot of the, or had quite a lot of the the life instinct that you were saying. One of the reasons he would want assisted dying is because he, he doesn't want to do it himself. He wants to give that to somebody else to do for him. So he's been having this circular thought process. And of course, because he forgets that he's having it, it's also a, a circular thought process that I've been experiencing yeah. a lot. When I was seeing him every day, which was a few years ago now, as someone who experiences suicidal ideation, I was visiting him and having, you know, maybe four or five conversations about him wanting to die, then going away. And then the next day, the same thing would happen. And it was very hard for me, very triggering I guess and I had some of the other things to, to tick at the time you know I, I had quite precarious working circumstances and I've got plenty of childhood trauma it was a very difficult process exposing myself to that every day but obviously something I wanted to do because I'm his carer mm-hmm. uh, or I was then and part of the reason I've moved away from him like physically as well as kind of practically has been because I, I just don't think it's very healthy for someone with my sort of background and setup to be exposing myself to that so I guess my question (laughs) after all of that monologue is if someone is exposed to that kind of thing in my circumstances what would you suggest are ways to mitigate that now I'm of course doing it all over again because I'm making a podcast about it no I think self-care is so important and I think you've highlighted such an important issue because we know never mind the specifics of suicidal risk but we know that carers people caring with people with long-term conditions family members and especially with really difficult conditions like dementia is that the risk of impact on their own health the carer's health is immense now if you're already vulnerable that vulnerability you can then see in your loved one you can see how that's like this double whammy that you're exhausted and emotionally invested and it sort of resonates with you so it really highlights so so important self-care I mean if possible go and speak to a mental health professional it doesn't matter if it's a psychologist a counsellor or somebody else or even attending these sort of self-help organisations and groups with other people who are experiencing the same because part of it is recognising that what you're going through isn't unique other people experience it and then actually by talking to others that sort of camaraderie is one part of this sort of self-care but i think really check in with your gp i think that's so important check in with your gp as well as using these more informal supports as well as friends and wider circles as well but we cannot emphasize enough the importance of that because you can't look after your loved one if you're not looking after yourself. I was lucky in two ways, really, in that I happened to be going through 20 weeks of therapy through the NHS around about the time when, I mean, that was part of the process of deciding to move away, actually. I wouldn't have given myself permission to look after myself, probably, before going to therapy. Although it was luck. I didn't go to therapy directly because of the circumstances I was in, because we live in a very complicated time to actually access therapy on the NHS. It took me six years to get talking therapy face-to-face. Some of those years I was meant better some of them I was worse but I kept plugging on and luckily I did because it just happened that I was in quite a bad place when I finally got the therapy so there was that but the other thing that helps me on a personal level is I'm one of four siblings so we can take it in turns the other thing sorry just saying in terms of self-care what works for each of us is different suicide is part of my life every single day and I also have lost two important people in my life to suicide which has been devastating and something I've had to try and manage myself so obviously I, I also see somebody on a weekly basis to support my own well-being but I also do exercise. I run and I play a lot of tennis. And actually, the power of that exercise is, for me is just works so well. I know other people do yoga or swim, whatever the heck it is. And that's so important. So we just all need to just keep a bit of time for ourselves to really master and look after our own well-being. We're all focused on spending time on looking after our physical health. We have to look after our mental health. 
I've been a wall puncher. I've given myself a lot of bruises over the years. When I was 15, I got so angry that I smashed up my bedroom, ripping apart my childhood cuddly toys, smashing everything that was glass. My dad found me surrounded by broken things, holding parts of a torn up dolphin and crying. He hugged me. The next day, I mended that dolphin with cotton and superglue, and I still sleep with him now. What are the ethical considerations that you think about when dealing with telling people's histories? As you kind of mentioned earlier on, a lot of these histories are very personal. History is always personal to the people involved. And not just about like how you approach their personal stories, but also how do you approach talking about suicide in a historical context? Really good question. And one that I can't say I have the final answer for. It's a process and it's something that you keep on asking yourself. You keep on testing your resolve, I suppose, and also also keep on questioning your conscience and your ethical boundaries as well. You know, first of all, the stories that I am unearthing were available for all to see. Most of the stories, at least the tip of the iceberg of the stories, were reported in the newspapers. Days after these people killed themselves, their lives, their fragilities, their tragedy was being exposed to the widest possible public. And that is something worth investigating in and of itself. There's a queasiness about that that you get. You know, I mean, what, what, what indignity is it? for people to be exposed in this way. There's one suicide case that illustrates this really well, the the case of a a woman called Dame Helena Swanick, who I'd come across at every stage of my research before. And then she comes back as significant in this project because in November 1939, she took her own life and left two notes, in fact, and her suicide was what I would call a political suicide. She had been a suffragist before the First World War. During the First World War, she became a pacifist and increasingly an absolute pacifist. She was vitally concerned with the changing nature of warfare and everyone's vulnerability, but also women's vulnerability to air war and so forth. Troublingly, by by the mid to late 1930s, she started to be so anti-war that she decided to possibly overlook the excesses of the Nazis because to her it was kind of a peace at any price kind of position. Lots of dilemmas there ethically for me immediately because I wasn't sympathetic to her absolutist pacifism in the face of Hitler. And so many others who'd been pacifists, and pacifism was a a very, very mainstream position in the 20s and well into the 30s. But many, if not most of those who had even had been kind of the more outspoken pacifists and those who were generally amongst the population, had some kind of epiphany or conversion in the course of the 30s. Usually the Spanish Civil War, starting in 1936, was the turning point, the pivot. For others, it was the Munich crisis, others even a little bit later into the day. But she never had this change of heart. When she killed herself, she was already 75 years old. Uh, She was a very sick woman, physically ill. She had suffered from all kinds of physical ailments throughout most of her adult life. But she, you know, she was a a national figure as well. So here I was with this person who I feel I really got to know. I went to see her papers, even though she was British. Her papers have been deposited at Swarthmore College in Philadelphia. I went to see her papers and examine those. So I came to know her quite well. She had an autobiography published in 1935, which was very revealing in many ways. And her suicide was very rational. I think that's what I'm 
trying to come to here too. We assume that suicides are these impetuous kind of spontaneous acts full of drama and, and fragility again. And in her case, it was very, very planned. It was very philosophically justified. The other thing is that coroner's reports are few and far between now for that period. Not so much because of ethical reasons or because of privacy reasons, but because most of them were destroyed. I mean, just due to space. So of these, you know, 130 plus cases I, I have, I only have about a dozen actual coroner's reports. But we managed to track down hers. And I had known the story inside out. And I figured these suicide notes, hopefully they were in the file. And I figured they'd be, you know, farewell to this world and this, you know, great kind of explanation and self-justification for why she had done what she'd done. And, and they were actually incredibly banal. What she wanted to do in these notes, one was to her housekeeper to make sure that all of her personal matters would be dealt with, and the other was to her doctor to make it very clear that she had meant to do this because she was a very sick woman already. And indeed, the coroner's verdict was that it was probably suicide, but actually medically or in terms of evidence. No, no, no. It looked like potentially a natural death, but she wanted to make it very clear in that, and that's why she left the notes, to say, it wasn't a natural death. I decided to do this, and it's only my my doing. She also wanted to make sure her doctor would not somehow be charged or implicated for having given her the wrong dose or actually what was an, by then an illegal barbiturate. She had acquired. So, but you, interesting, you say euthanasia, because actually in that autobiography I just mentioned, she'd gone on a lot about euthanasia. So this was something that she had been in a way planning or been ready to do for an awfully long time. This was a very methodical, very philosophical, very political act. What is political suicide? How do you define that? Right. Well, again, there are as many definitions as there are cases. I think we have to be careful in all these cases. To me, or how I'm using it, is that a, a suicide is political when it has. We have to be careful not to trivialize these uh, suicides. But there are suicides which are very much triggered by the political circumstances. It's interesting in terms of your personal story. I've read a little bit about how you came to be where you are now on a personal level. And as you say, there's those two friends who passed, which, you know, I've had a little bit of experience of that kind of thing, but not actually that much. The surprising thing for me is, as someone whose dad was 58 when I was born is that I've spent my entire life expecting my dad yeah. to die and have yet to have a very close person be lost to me. It's clearly coming super soon. So I am preparing myself for that. But the other thing, when looking at your personal history, when I'm saying, that my dad was 58 when I was born your dad was 51 when he died yeah, yeah. that was from a heart attack when you you were 23 my dad had a heart attack when I was six but survived quadruple heart bypass when I was 15 and survived so I feel like I definitely can't complain I've been very lucky although I didn't expect to be but it's interesting that losing someone at a young age I guess has been part of why you've devoted your life to stopping people from dying yeah I think I think you're right I suppose for me when my dad died suddenly and I mean I, I was fortunate I wasn't a 
teenager or younger than that when my dad died, but obviously when I was 23. And that was a huge shock for me. And I'd always been incredibly driven. I was always fascinated by psychology and, and so on. And although his was a heart attack, not a suicide, but that just gave me this extra impetus to recognize that life is short. Life is precious. And, and sadly, to this day, I've been waiting to die. As I get closer and closer to, I'm 46, so I get closer and closer to my 51st birthday. That's, I mean, it's a huge fear. And I've been expecting right. that ever since my father died. But the plus side of that is of recognizing your mortality is I'm just an incredibly driven person. And then when I, when, when I couple that with then this coming into the field of suicide research and suicide prevention, I, I get some sense of the absolute loss that people experience. Now, mine was very, very different. But that's really driven me. And that's why I've been so passionate in part and just doing whatever I can effectively before I die. And that's something that I've had to take into account as well when talking to my dad about these kind of things, because he also, his father passed away of tuberculosis during World War II. My dad, I think he was a little bit younger than you, maybe 20 or maybe 19. And it's weird now because I've always feared my dad would die, but now I kind of want him to for his own sake at this point. We actually... I guess brings me back to the question of like, what do you think in terms of, because I I don't call it assisted suicide. I call it assisted dying. There's a lot of arguments about that. Again, terminology evolves and changes. In this particular case, it's a very political phrase. But as somebody who works with stopping people from suicide, how do you feel about assisted dying? It's a tricky one. It's not something I've directly done any research on. So I'm always a bit reluctant to comment on it directly because it's it's just a personally held view. I suppose to my mind, what I try and do is just understand why is it that somebody wants assisted dying? And I think that, for example, the model of suicide I've developed helps us understand that. And so it's understanding that sense of entrapment because an individual who maybe has a terminal illness or a debilitating illness, and basically you can see why they may want their pain to end. I suppose where it gets tricky is the sort of what some people used to describe as a sort of slippery slope sort of hypothesis is we have to make sure that we're protecting the rights of the individual who is vulnerable in that they're making the, whatever decisions they're making, they're making up sound mind and without coercion and that just makes it a bit complicated so I'm not really going to express a view beyond that except recognise that there are obviously common features of assisted dying and suicide but also that it's a really complex issue. Having been locked in these circular conversations as much as they've triggered me a lot I've actually come to the conclusion that they're very different things and come from very different motivations. My dad's kind of motivation is about keeping him and being himself for as long as possible my motivation is I don't want to carry on being me so it's an interesting kind of difference when I, because I've been talking to some people pro and anti assisted dying, the doctor made a comment about suicide. He said suicide has gone from being something that we should avoid and to try and help people to avoid to something that is actually considered good, something that we should encourage people to do. It's an expression of autonomy. The word isn't even used so often because people talk about choice and control. Now he's talking about media coverage. Clearly he thinks that it's become more permissive, that we're kind of encouraging people. That's not how I really see the media coverage of suicide. But what But what do you think? Yeah, again, it's an interesting and difficult area. For my mind, though, it's relatively straightforward, I think, in my head, which is I've encountered countless people in my career who, in a moment of crisis and they attempted suicide and they were really really so fortunate they're still alive just by some intervention that they didn't die and I've met so many people like that who now tell me they're so pleased they're still alive so for me it is that when we're talking about suicide I think suicide is not the answer and really that when you're in that 
acute suicidal crisis, you think it's the only answer. You think it's the only way to end your pain. And I think in most cases that that's not true. Certainly speaking to people who medically really shouldn't be here because they've taken such near lethal, engaged in such near lethal attempts. They are the ones telling me, well, actually, I'm so pleased I'm alive and I'm pleased that we do value life in the way that we do. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely heard those kind of experiences many times myself from people I know, and I'm so glad that they're still here. I think broadly as a society, we all think that to a certain extent, you know, whether they are people who think there should be stigma around suicide or people who don't, nobody's going around going like, suicide's a good thing and we should all do it. And actually, if you do it, it means you have kind of autonomy. I mean, there, there but are... Some, but the reality is some people are saying that. I guess if you true. go on, the, on on some of the social media and the chat rooms, and stuff and that's a re- that is concerning is right. that I agree it's not a widespread widely held view but there's sadly too many people out there who are basically taunting vulnerable people and I think that's my concern is when somebody is in this moment of vulnerability something like that that trigger to action that cue to action could actually make people more likely to attempt suicide or die by suicide and I think that is irresponsible obviously it just highlights the, the complex set of factors that are that are associated with suicide because the point is we need to harness these new technologies and new media and new ways of thinking and maximize or optimize them so they're providing and supporting people rather than being part of the problem your dad died very young so at the same time i guess you know i'm very lucky that you didn't die young and you're very lucky that you've lived a full life you know that's a a sad terrible it's just terrible i can't that really was a tragedy for me because i did love him very much and if i could remember his face but your love stays regardless oh, God, of your memory. Yeah, yeah. You experience the memories that. of when I didn't know him, that brief period, until I was 16. You're also looking at what can be called suicide epidemics, when lots of people, for whatever reason, decide to kill themselves. I mean, what would you say about suicide epidemics? Again, very apropos as we sit here on this day in history, as we're waiting for decisions about how, you know, this current pandemic will be handled. Suicide was very well studied by the 1930s. You know, already at the end of the 19th century, Durkheim had written on suicide. It was already a real focus for study. There's a whole field called suicidology. Patterns of suicide epidemics had been, you know, studied already in the past. Why we can say this was in itself an epidemic, again, is because of the common cause in all of these cases. Now, the question is whether we make the judgment it was an epidemic or whether the the sense that it was an epidemic actually encouraged the spread of suicides and other people to take the same measures is something that I can't offer a definitive answer to that at this stage. It certainly was interesting to look at where and in what kind of sources it was identified as something of epidemic proportions. In statistical terms, there was, let's start, there was a, you know, a real rise in suicide rates in the early 1930s as a result of the Great Depression and of, of economic crisis, and especially high amongst men who largely unemployed or those who lost everything or felt they'd lost everything as a result of the crash. That spike has been known for a very long time, and it was discussed at the time and since. But then there's another little spike, not as high, in 1938, which I don't think has ever been properly discussed. I don't want to suggest that these were the only kinds of motives for suicide at that time. We still have all the other reasons. But what is unusual is this group of suicides, which are are due to the war fear. So 
again, it is talked about as an epidemic, but not so much in Britain. Now, that might go back to what I'm saying about the press being very conscious of not playing up fear, but dampening it down as much as possible. There was already concern voiced in Parliament and in, in government about how suicides should be covered in the press in general already a couple of years before this. There was a, a fear that, you know, the reporting of suicide was a, a source of contagion. People would see what options lay before them and, and they would be motivated, inspired by, led to make the same decision, especially uh, about method. We know that till this day, of course, and we could talk about lots of controversies recently about how social media and how the internet has made suicide much more accessible, very, very worryingly. Again, anxieties are not new. They go back to older forms of media as well. So the media itself was very careful not to label it or to call it an epidemic in Britain. But I had a wonderful researcher working with me on the project, Steph Wright, who was a historian of Spain. And she happened to come across an article in a Spanish newspaper, which talked about Britain's epidemic of suicides in the face of the Munich crisis. So it's interesting how from an international, from an outsider perspective, they looked in on what was happening in Britain. But what Britons were reading about, and this is important when you come to the question of epidemics, what British readers were reading about, they were reading about waves of suicides and mass suicides in Germany from Hitler's rise to power in Austria in 1938 with the Anschluss, in Czechoslovakia during the crisis itself. And of course, the vast majority of these mass suicides were amongst Jewish populations who had to face the terrible consequences first of you know mounting anti-Semitism in Germany and then sudden legal and other restrictions when the Nazis occupied or annexed, as the case in Austria was. So this was very much in the news. I've done research through the national press and the regional press, but very prominent in the national press. Our reports of these waves of mass suicides dealt with with a great deal of empathy as very, very strong evidence and kind of a wake-up call to a more complacent readership of what Nazism actually meant. So as I say, this this idea that suicide was something that had epidemic proportion was very fresh in people's minds then. That's very, very interesting. It sort of corresponds with something I read a few days ago about the reason that the Spanish flu was called Spanish flu is because Spain didn't have newspapers that were censoring things. And so it reported it a little bit more clearly in that moment. Whereas other parts of Europe, which also had the flu at the time, didn't. And so Spain got the name. One of the phrases that's come up when I've been researching what you do is, is war of nerves as well. That hopefully will be the centerpiece of the book that I'm working on uh, at the moment. So war of nerves, really interesting phrase. One that was used very specifically at that time, which I think has been largely overlooked, or I hope it has been, certainly from my own secondary source research. There's been some discussion of it. I'm not dismissing some really, really vital contributions by historians and literary critics already when it comes to diagnosing this war of nerves. But it's not part of the national narrative the way that other terms are. I mean, we talk about the people's war. We talk about the blitz spirit. You've been mentioning that before. But what I'm starting to really decipher here is that what precedes the people's war is actually the people's crisis, and that's the Munich crisis. Again, it's not just a diplomatic, high politics event. It was a deeply social event that affected all strata 
of the population, the rich and the poor, everyone in between, the young and the old, across the country, across the region, across the empire, at different ethnicities and sexes as well. Too often that gets overlooked. What's going on here is not just the dramatic unfolding of events, the great kind of feeling of suspense of what's going to happen when, when Chamberlain goes on his three trips to Germany and finally that third one at Munich where it seems to be this is peace in our t- peace for our time often mis- misquoted, peace, this is peace for our time, he declares, as he gets off the plane after that third meeting and after having signed the Munich Agreement. What is often overlooked is that that nervousness was very, very widespread and had a complete trickle-down effect. Now, the war of nerves is often used in military terms as a kind of a black ops psychological warfare. That's really important here too. It's important here around the negotiations at at Munich over Czechoslovakia, over the Sudetenland, but it becomes even more true. And it's a a term used by the press and and, and, and in political discourse in the months after around, of course, the Danzig and in the months leading up to the war itself. And in the months afterwards as well, when we also talk about the phony war period, where nothing really happens, at least in British terms, nothing really happens between September 39 and, and May 19. This deep nervous tension that takes everyone over. And who suffers most from nerves? Well, usually it's seen to be women. All right, women are the hysterics. Women are the ones who panics. They're the warriors, they're the jitterers, jitter, the jitters. Having the jitters was a kind of condition of the time. But again, more and more it's acknowledged that this isn't a gendered experience, that men also suffer from nerves, that much, much has to be done at all levels to pacify these nerves, to cure, to help, to calm the nerves. Because not only for individual reasons, but because, well, you need to maintain more morale in these situations. And, you know, there's nothing more important on the home front than morale. So nerves becomes a real focus of attention at the government level and certainly amongst a group of new doctors and psychologists. So let me say something about that, if I might. What I'm also seeing here, and what I think probably might be quite apparent already, is that these terms, this obsession, this interest with nerves, with nervous systems, with the projection of individual pathologies and individual illnesses and individual crises on the state becomes pretty, you know, commonplace. What we see there is the mainstreaming of psychoanalysis, of a new field of study called medical psychology. This medical psychology was usually, you know, the practitioners were psychiatrists themselves, but they applied what they saw in individual cases to the collective. All right, so going back to where you started and saying that these days mental health is seen in a very individuated way, as somehow divorced and apart from society and environment. In the late 1930s, we have the opposite. Psychologists were looking at what they had started to diagnose. And so, you know, of course, those diagnoses have been criticized and, and unpacked. And there's been big lurches in the treatment and in the, in the understanding of mental health and psychiatry. But nonetheless, at that point, what is happening is that more and more, I mean, we're talking from Freud, civilization is discontents, to more minor figures or to, you know, people who might not have the same kind of name or recognition as Freud does. And many of them British who had learned from Freud, who were part of the psychoanalytic movement and very interested in psychoanalysis and themselves psychoanalysts. They were using what they were observing in their clinical work, in their individual clinical work, and projecting that onto the collective. That's really interesting. I mean, I always think that it's like a, it's a you know, we have these shifts one way, then we shift back and it's really interesting. The dialect, right? Yeah, right. The dialect, that's, that's right. There have been plenty of times when I've really considered 
stopping myself existing. Sharing these experiences help us to understand that we're not alone. Men are emotional, but we're told not to show our emotions. It's taken me years to start to be truly open and honest with myself and with others. My friendships, theatre, music, writing and my father gave me things to live for and to escape into. When we're thinking about anybody's health, our health is at least two things. It's certainly physical and it's mental, right? And the two are entwined. And it's not necessarily that mental health only influences physical health, but physical health influences mental health. And you've got this bi-directionality. And I think it comes back to this broad notion that when I meet people who have been suicidal or spoken to loved ones who lost somebody to this awful, awful affliction of 800,000 people dying by suicide across a globe each year. And you often hear different stories. And and sometimes the stories around the fact that actually that maybe it's related to physical health, that the risk of suicide was related to physical health, but also the fact that people don't prioritize their mental health enough. Now, that's changing. The World Health Organization, I think in 1948, so like many years ago, first put out this big statement saying, when we're talking about health, health is both those things, mental health and physical health. So even though that statement came out in 1948, we had to wait until 2014 for the World Health Organization to publish a World Suicide Prevention Report. And in that World Suicide Prevention Report, it was about the promotion of this whole One Health approach. And I just think in many ways that illustrates the challenge we've had in the intervening, whatever that is, 70 years, is it? I can't do my maths very well when I'm on a podcast. podcast. Although we as society, when I'm speaking of society very broadly, have made huge advances in terms of understanding our mental health, we still don't prioritize it. We still have in the UK, for example, there isn't parity of esteem. We talk about having equal respect in mental health and physical health the same, making sure that there are resources in both physical health and mental health there is no parity and every government says there's parity or that's their aspiration but they haven't got there yet and indeed there's a really stark statistic which sort of illustrates this in a sort of indirect way there's a mental health research charity called mq research and i've done some work with them they funded some of our research four or five years ago they tried to estimate how much funding went into mental health research compared to cancer or heart disease and the like. And they came up with this really important statistic. They looked at not only the absolute amount of money which went into these, but also looked at for every pound that the British government invests, say, in mental health research, how much does the general public raise in donations, right? So if you think of Macmillan or Cancer Research UK, they are just incredible incredibly important organizations, incredibly successful in fundraising. And so when people run their marathons and whatever they do, a lot of them are for cancer research and less often for mental health research. Now, the stark statistic, though, is, and I may not get this precisely correct, but it's something like for every one pound that the British government invests in cancer research or heart disease, either of them, it's a similar sort of picture. The general public raise, I think, is something like £2.35, right, for every one pound. Or something like that. So don't quote me on the precise number, but that's the principle is still true. But if you compare the same figure for mental health research, for every one pound the British government invests in mental health research, the general public raises a third of a penny. A third of a penny. So you just think about that for a second. A third of a penny versus 2.35 or whatever that absolute figure is for cancer research or for heart disease or whatever it is. Now, I'm not saying don't invest in cancer research and don't invest in heart disease, but we need to invest more in mental health research and treatment and practice, obviously, as well. The funding of the same figure for suicide research is even smaller. To me, that illustrates the fact that although we talk about One Health, 
a lot. We've made such strides forward, but we've so much further to go in terms of really prioritizing our mental health, not just in research, but making sure people have access to the services. Three quarters of the UK's suicides are by men. And we know from the research evidence that some psychological treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectal behavioral therapy, they work, we think, for reducing risk of repeat suicidal behavior. The stark reality is we don't know whether they work for men because most of the clinical trials do not have sufficient numbers of men in them that we can say, actually, that's CBT works. So when we're prioritizing and thinking about mental health and preventing suicide, we need to make sure we get treatments and support that are tailored for the most vulnerable. Yes, of course, for women as well, but for men in particular, given three quarters of the suicides in this country are male. Gender and suicide and mental health is a kind of complicated area. Like men are more likely to engage in the suicidal behaviors, but then there's other studies that suggest that women, because they engage in suicidal behaviors through different methods to men, are not successful. But I guess the pain is still the same whether the success is there or not. Broadly speaking, I think we should be providing support for all genders and all people. And I'm, I'm, I know you're not you're not saying we shouldn't. And I, I think you know what I see often is far too much fighting rather than supporting not enough solidarity between the different groups who aren't getting the support they need and too much pointing at each other and and and, and not like working together collectively to kind of ask for better mental health services and more funding from the government and more funding from the general population so yeah like it is it is a complex thing and I, I I'm definitely not meaning to undermine your comment because I think it's very important that we tailor things to the people who are successful because we want to stop people being successful in suicide but it is a little bit more complex than sometimes some mental health campaigners who advocate for men give it credit for similarly the, the same could be said for mental health campaigners who advocate for women couldn't agree more so i suppose i'm just raising the point that we should be speaking with one voice we should be working together collaboratively doesn't matter who our constituency is doesn't matter if i'm representing a male mental health charity or a female or an lgbt group or people with an ethnic minority background, whatever it is, absolutely should be working together. I suppose my message is we haven't done enough yet in tailoring our treatments or support or interventions to those who are more, most vulnerable. doesn't matter what that vulnerable group or who that vulnerable group is. And that's what we need to do. We need much more investment in research and much more investment in treatment and prevention. Unless it's tailored, it can't be effective. And you're right. I mean, definitely there are many groups who have higher increase of of potential to be successful in these behaviours. I mean, I don't even know if successful is is quite the right word. Well, we shouldn't. So again, in the media guidelines, we try not to talk about successful because that is a a sort of value-laden term as well. So So obviously we just... Basically, the outcome is devastating and, and we shouldn't be, yeah, we should try and avoid using successful. question here about class. 
talking about mental health, talking about mental illness, talking about struggles one has, you know, psychological struggles. It is bound up with class a great deal. I think we can't deny that. So I think that that, that's something that is also true for the late 1930s. And it's interesting to see how those who were less educated, maybe working class, maybe middle class, but women, how they dealt with their mental health struggles. And there was a whole market geared towards these mental health struggles. And this is really interesting. Whenever I look up war of nerves, you can do so much research now with word searchable, digitized newspapers, etc. Whenever I look up that expression, the majority of hits are for various remedies for nervousness and neurothenia, which again was a condition which men did suffer from, but the vast majority either were or were assumed to be women. And there was Santagen and all these, these, you know, Ovaltine, all of these kind of herbally remedies that were being sold on the on the promise of calming people down of helping them overcome and they, they used the expression there the war of nerves yeah i mean it's interesting thinking about gender in these terms and like as somebody who you know is was certainly brought up as a straightforward boy one of the things that kind of made me start to feel like maybe different about my gender or whatever was that I had a lot of nerves, was that I had a lot of emotions. And I quite rarely for, for men or boys was somebody who was frequently told I was hysterical, uh, overdramatic, all of those kinds of things that women, you know, experience all the time. And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying it's not worse for, the, for women, but it is interesting to think that often we don't think of men as nervous or having anxiety, as we probably would say now, when in fact, Men absolutely experience those things and, and not acknowledging nervousness or anxiety is a big part of men and masculinity's problem. I think, you know, in terms of how we express ourselves, the actions that we take, if you're supposed to not be feeling nervous, does that mean that you act super confident when you're not confident? Does that help precipitate bad kind of political outcomes? The kind of personal and the societal is, is always kind of linked in these kind of ways. It's interesting. It also makes me think of the fact that it's not usually until men are seen to suffer from these things that governments and medics take these problems seriously. So it's shell shock in the First World War. Some of the symptoms are called neurothenia and so forth. That's when these things get studied and taken seriously, when men are the ones that are increasingly seen to actually be suffering from these things, which were seen as women's maladies, feminine maladies. So, you know, when they're just women's problems, we can leave them more or less as they are. And we, you know, we put them in asylums. We do this, we do that. We, we make little nods, but ultimately it's only when the men are, are seen to be suffering from and uh, be the victims of these things that they need to be taken seriously. And that's exactly, you know, why I I think the idea of the war of nerves on the eve of the Second World War becomes a political matter and not just a cultural one. Now you're in a, a big research part of, of your work, but kind of early on you organised a symposium about suicide history and, and those kind of things. What was that symposium and what did you learn through the process of putting it on? I don't know where to start with what I learned. It's endless. Um, there were, you know, over 40 people presenting papers and presenting their research, taking part in panels and, and round tables. And I think what I learned is how amazingly rich and full of potential those kind of collaborations are, but also how challenging to kind of reproduce what happened 
happens in that setting in, in a, you know, in a podcast, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah, I think the feedback that we got and, you know, what came out the most in the last part of the discussion where everyone had kind of lived through this <laughs> grueling two and a half days and now wanted to make sense of the journey we'd all traveled together. Sounds a bit cliche, but there you go. Was that we probably didn't all mean the same thing when we used the term suicide, that we needed kind of refined definitions of what we meant. Because it's kind of what you'd already said, that some of us were talking about suicide as a political act, some of us weren't. We measured the importance of society, of the environmental, in different ways, depending on our disciplinary perspectives, depending on the actual cases we were looking at. And of course, it comes down to ethical, legalistic, and very personal interpretations of these terms. What did bring us all together, we were all very open to unpacking this concept and unpacking the problem of suicide, the problem of analyzing it, of categorizing it, of understanding its link, you know, the link between the individual and, and the social. What was one of the things that really struck me, what was a common thread through most of the contributions to that symposium was the investment, the personal investment that people had in the, in the topic. At least half, if not more than half, had some kind of personal experience that led to their interest in this in the topic more so than in any other kind of field in which I've been involved there was that very personal motivation that personal trigger yeah I mean that that makes sense I mean the 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 reason that this topic is part of my podcast is because I am somebody who experiences suicidal ideations or suicidal thoughts many people in my life have been touched by suicide in different kind of ways and uh, my dad would like to die for for slightly different reasons than than the classic suicide uh, reasons I certainly have a personal stake in this topic and uh, I feel like most people do I mean mental health in general is something we all have mental health we're all experiencing the world and trying to deal with it and so it's a very personal very human topic to be grappling with but also as you say like there's there's so many ethical considerations in how we present it how we talk about it and that's something that I'm doing in this project more widely and in this particular episode in, in a lot of detail I'll be worrying about all of those things. I've got a quote from you, I think it was probably from the New Statesman piece that you gave an interview to, where you talked about how history can give us a deeper, more multifaceted understanding of suicide. How would you describe that deeper, more multifaceted understanding? I want to be careful there, of course, because I don't want to in any way belittle or offer an interpretation or impose an interpretation on what will be grieving and suffering for for those around me. So going back to your question originally about ethical concerns, I want to say that before I say anything else. I don't want to be seen to kind of deal with these so clinically that I'm not aware that there are lives that are deeply affected the suicide case but also of course everyone that's left behind and is grieving but having said that what i think can be said is that we do understand that suicide rates are linked to patterns of of social crisis of political crisis of economic crisis there was definitely a big spike in in suicide rates in the fallout of the 2008 financial crisis there's a whole area of study now about the relationship between austerity measures and suicide this isn't something that we should see as so novel but that there are deeper longer patterns and again within living memory having said that i think it's really important to say that the environment in which i'm doing this research has changed a great deal and it's it's very welcoming environment and that's not just a plug for the welcome trust it's a welcoming environment in that as we know discussion of mental health has become seemingly at least much freer much more liberalized there's a great deal of attention paid to it by celebrities by political figures the stigma 
I'm not saying it's disappeared, but I think we can ag- agree that the stigma has has diminished considerably. Sometimes you could talk about it's, you know, almost a commercialization uh, of mental health. And I'm sure there's other ways to critique what's going on. But I think generally it's it's a good thing. What has also struck me though, so, you know, again, there's more interest in this. People want to hear about it historically, sociologically, medically. There's interest in the media about it. There's interest in government. There's interest at the Wellcome Trust and so forth. But the other thing to say is that it's not as unprecedented as I think, I thought, you know, sometimes the condescension of history plays a part here that it, and we need to be careful here. I think we sometimes think, oh, we're the most enlightened. In the past, people didn't talk about these. They didn't have emotions. They repressed everything. They never said anything. They never talked. It's not true. It's not true. And that brings us back to the war of nerves. They had a different language to describe these things. They had certain different boundaries, what we might call boundaries, right? But they were, they were bloody brilliant too, right? And quite enlightened and certainly aware of the relationship and the link between our inner selves and our outer selves. Right. I mean, and that's actually, I mean, that's part of what having kind of my unique circumstances of my upbringing have, has, has always had in the, the forefront of my mind that, that we don't invent these things. I mean, as a sort of slightly tangential example of that is, you know, my dad had an open relationship with his first wife. We're talking in the 40s and uh, people these days think that, that that kind of configuration for relationships is, is a new invention. That has always been very much at the forefront of my mind. We're not inventing things, but we do have different words and, and that, of course, is also something that having a father born in the 20s brings brings home to you is that you know he may be using the best politically correct word for his time but they will no longer be that in this time is there anything that you would have liked to have said or that you'd like to emphasize? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for inviting me to this discussion and being part of this podcast. I've really enjoyed our chat and, you know, you've really asked some thought-provoking questions and it's helped me think about the subject in new ways by thinking about your own experience and your own approach. So thank you for that. The main point that I'm, I'm trying to make is that I think there is a real interest and appetite and openness at this moment in history for acknowledging that vital link between the environmental and the personal, between what's out there and what's inside, that so much of what we suffer from or what exercises us are things that we have internalized uh, from the outside. But the other thing is, as well as, is to give people aftercare. I think these podcasts are really, really important because we're trying to reach as wide an audience as possible, especially people who won't necessarily watch the BBC or listen to Radio 4 or Radio 1 or whatever it is. And that's why podcasts like this are so, so important. And I suppose my message is if you are listening to this podcast and you are concerned about yourself or a loved one, if you're concerned about a loved one, please, please reach out and ask them because ask them whether directly whether they're suicidal or not because there's no evidence at all that asking that question increases or plants the idea in their head whereas there is evidence by asking that question that person can get the help and support that they require. And then for somebody who is feeling suicidal themselves just to sort of sort of re-emphasize that those thoughts do pass. You are worthy of this life and there are people out there will will be devastated if you're dead. And please, please hold on. Please reach out and please, please stay safe. If you're looking for someone to help you with your mental health or suicidal thoughts, 
These are some organizations which I recommend. The Samaritans, SANE, the Campaign Against Living Miserably or Calm, which is specifically aimed at men and boys, MIND, Rethink, the National Survivor User Network, and the National Self-Harm Network. Those are only some of the organizations that are out there, though, so find the organization that works for you. Most, if not all, of those organizations have a phone line that you can access and online resources that you can read. You can hear Down to a Sunless Sea on the Getting Better Acquainted podcast feed or on its own dedicated feed. If you go to podcastviews.com, then there's a survey there that I'd really appreciate you filling in. It only takes a few minutes and if you do it, you can be entered into a prize draw for a £50 Amazon voucher. This survey was created by the British Podcast Awards and the Wellcome Trust so that they can get an idea of the impact that their funding has had. And if you are filling out that survey, Down to a Sunless Sea counts as Getting Better Acquainted because Getting Better Acquainted is the podcast that it evolved out of and that it's produced by. You can find Down to a Sunless Sea Memories of My Dad on Facebook. It's on Twitter, at SunlessPod. You can email the show at downtoasunlesspod at gmail.com. And big thanks to Professor Julie Gottlieb and Professor Rory O'Connor for their brilliant contributions to today's episode. You can find Rory on Twitter, at Suicide Research, and he has a website called Suicide Research. Info. And he's currently engaging in a nationally representative longitudinal study of mental health and well-being during the COVID-19 pandemic. You can find Julie at Julie B. Gottlieb on Twitter. The blog post that she was referring to is called Post-Referendum Depression. She also gave an interview to the New Statesman in an article that they wrote about that topic. And recently she wrote an article for the New Statesman called Surviving a War of Nerves, Lessons for the Age of Coronavirus from 1930s Britain. She's currently working on a new book and her previous books are Guilty Women, Foreign Policy and Appeasement in Interwar Britain and Feminine Fascism, Women in Britain's fascist movement. I used some clips in today's episode and in previous episodes of the podcast from my one-person show, What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity, which you can find at www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. And I also made a follow-up to that, which went out on BBC Radio 4's Forethought, which is called liberating men and both of those are available to listen to for free online and i'll put links to all of the things that i've just mentioned in the show notes on the website down to a sunless pod.com
You had two inspirational teachers mm-hmm. when you were at school. Yes, I did. So, who were school. they? Francis Kamnitz and um, Harry Ray. And extraordinary that they both came to the school in sort of 1939. No, 1940, after the war started. They came down from Cambridge. And they came to my grammar school in South London, which wasn't a sort of posh grammar school, it was just a standard grammar school. Beckenham and Penge Grammar School for Boys. And then when the war started, they were both conscientious objectors. But Harry rapidly decided that, you know, this was a war that had to be fought against fascism and all that. He knew it anyway. If you were a conscientious objector, you were directed to war work. And in fact, Francis became a conscientious objector and had to leave the school and go and work in on, a, uh, in a, on a sort of farm in Lincolnshire. So that's what happened to him. And then Harry, I think, convinced, who was in the SOE, convinced you know, him to join. To join. So, but what... what um, to change his mind from being... You know, from being anti, anti-war and, to being... Well, and, well I mean, to and, being a, a complete pacifist, to believe that under no circumstances exactly, yeah. should you fight, to actually accepting that there were... That Some circumstances war, require yeah. it. And the SOE uh, is... Well, SOE was the main o- overall organisation. They had... You know, SOE in different countries. They had agents in different countries. And they went to France because they were French speakers. Yeah.